So give me a second because some of the people here might not know what happened there. What happened? So yeah, yeah. good question, eh? Exactly. Marianne was not here earlier. Sorry. Right. So. Why don't I do the short deal and then you can yeah, just give the update? Yeah, why don't you let him do the short deal? Yeah. <laughs> so Caitlin got a blood clot in her leg. It moved up towards her heart. It moved more towards her heart. They put her in the hospital. They took part of it out. So it's been a big deal. So she's still in the hospital now with a blood clot, and you're up. They have removed the whole blood clot. She had two surgeries. It's all gone. They're trying to do some testing to find out where it came from, but that will probably not happen for another month. But she's clear. Um, she has a lot of blood thinner in her body, so they're making sure that leaves. They're making sure she can walk properly on that leg before they let her go. They've got to remove a catheter and some other stuff. So... Lord willing, they'll get to go home today, if not tomorrow, but it'd be good if they got back home to Enid before Jeremiah has to go back to the base. Yeah. He does have Monday off from Memorial Day, so that's good. And then just keep praying. Uh, he had to miss a day of training to take her to the hospital, and they may bump him back to the next class. So if there was some miracle that he could stay in his current class, that'd be better, if not understanding it. But it'll go well in the new yeah. class. For those who did not hear this morning, the uh, Bonservant Ministries based out of Marion, North Carolina, head of Bonservant Ministries, Gary Capps, took his wife's life and then shot himself and killed himself. So uh, that was last Shabbat, and their community is uh, obviously reeling from death. We have a number of guests that I want to make sure um, everybody knows. And watching, of course, uh, remotely now is uh, the Wrights in Texas. Bellatora West. That's right, we saved the Sioux seats. The Memorial Wright seats. Yeah. Okay. You paid for them, you know. Yeah. So Tom and Trisha Brown are up from Myrtle Beach and have brought with them uh, Richard and Etty. Etty is a Jewess and has graced us by coming. And um, they're all four of them. I mean, they're just amazingly neat people. If you. When you're up here and you're from New York, Conway is Myrtle Beach. Conway is just the outlets on the way to Myrtle Beach. 
So if you didn't get a chance to chat with him, then after the, tor- uh, the portion discussion, they're, they're some of the neatest people. So the reason why I'm standing up here and holding off uh, Joshua coming up to lead us in our portion discussion, and praise God for Joshua leading us in the portion discussion, amen, amen, um, is that I, I just want to make it clear that what we do here, at least our, our Torah service, including the Shakari prayers, the, the Torah service, and, and all of that, uh, along with Oneg, and now a portion discussion, um, has turned out to be an extraordinary model. And, uh, and we've got folks literally all over the country, and some outside the country, um, that are marveling at you guys. Because, as you know, there's nothing special here. We opened our home because we're going to pray anyway, whether you're here or not, and all of you just keep showing up. That's pretty cool. Um, we know but, you are. How do we know Yeah. I am, a, I am a believer that consistent location is more important than consistent teaching. Consistent location. It doesn't move all around. Um, I say that because I'm trying to slowly but gently convince Samuel that he should put together a Bella Torah North. We also have the Torah North people in Canada watching now. Um, That's actually Shabbat Shalom. There it is. Um, So I'm I'm trying to convince Samuel to to put something together and to meet on the first and third Shabbats. And that Actually, you would sacrifice the way he does for his family, and you would drive an hour and 40 minutes every now and then to go and help him have a minion so that he can pray. So if you think that's a good idea, then you may have the opportunity soon to step up to that reality. Then secondly, um, I just selfishly would love it if, uh, if maybe Tom were to do the same thing down south. And, uh, you know, I make no bones about it. I'd love to see... Uh, a community down there because um, I know that there's some good strong believers that are looking for some type of an orthodox-ish expression uh, or conservative or traditional expression uh, of our faith so there you go everything's out on the table no pressure no pressure your host that's all there is to it um, but I can tell you man to man you know me pretty well and and I think I know you if, if you simply want to love on people and minister to them on Shabbat. This is a cakewalk. I have been surrounded by some of the most loving and wonderful people. And yeah, it's a pain in the neck to set up the chairs. And yeah, we have to mop and clean up when everybody leaves. But I would do it, and my wife would do it again in a heartbeat because it is it is our life now. And I can strongly recommend it. Amen? Amen. Thank, thank you, Big hand to Alan. (laughs) 34th portion of the year, I believe. And next week starts uh, Sivan. And today is the, help me, 39th? 39th day of the Omer. And uh, Shavuot is coming up. So we're going to have a mikvah on Shavuot day. I'm hoping we're going to have something on Arab Shavuot, but we I don't are. want to put any... Pro- oh, oh, wait, wait, announcement, announcement. Yes? Yes, we are. Details to follow. There it is. So, there is a continuation of the annual Arab Shavuot opportunity 
at the Upham House. And then Anshabla <laughs> will be praying at the Spurlock Indian Trail Home. Uh, following, we will be at uh, Lake Wiley for Judah's Immersion. And there it is. So, from a community perspective, from a community perspective, we want to pray for one another. We want to be involved in each other's lives. We want to know what's going on. And we want to come together so that we might pray, especially on those days where God expects his people to come together. So these convocations, as we read in the Bible, are important. So now we've got one on Tuesday, 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 Tuesday night, Tuesday night right? And there is, and there is no uh, Tzadik class that night, thank We're goodness. Mm-hmm. Right. But all the Tzadikim will be there anyway. Sure. So that, and then Wednesday morning there, and then Wednesday afternoon at Lake Wiley. At Lake Wiley. Okay, has everybody got that? We'll good. send a meetup. Uh, good, good, good. A little meetup thing or, you know, cool, cool deal. There was one more thing, and I can't, I hate it when I don't write it down. We're off for the month of July. That's what it was. <laughs> Part of the gig here is you get 11 months, I get my wife for one. Okay, so the month of July, uh, early in the month, we'll be disappearing and leaving the state, actually, um, for a period of time. And uh, the house will be barren and completely un- unprotected, except for all of the guns and people that will be here waiting to protect it. Thank you very much. Um, so yeah, July we're we're not going to meet at all. That was a question. Okay, so July done, right? Question. Brock's also leaving the state in July. Brock is leaving the state in July. And I understand he's going to return to the state with a bride. You did what on Tuesday? Happy oh. <laughs> Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Scott. Happy birthday to you. I've never seen you in those of you who don't know and have uh, you know snuck in here late in this game, like Brock, you know, new doing the doing the doing that stuff. Um, Scott and uh, Susie and their children uh, met where you are right now and prayed with us as the start of Bellator for nearly a year. Um, it was just our two families. And uh, we left the door open one day, and look, you all showed up. <laughs> Praise God for that. And it is that easy, Tom. No pressure. <laughs> Joshua, I understand that this book is called Numbers in the uh, English Bible because of the Septuagint. Is that true? Probably. Okay. Good segue, Bible. I pressed your, uh, your impression there. Um, but it's not called Numbers in Hebrew. What's it called in Hebrew? Bar. Bar. Which means? In the wilderness. Right. Because guess where it takes place? <laughs> in the wilderness. Spatial. It's a spatial name. We get a, we get a oh. cool 
Joshua, there was one more thing. Did everyone get a chance to ask Peter who the pretty girl is? Pretty girl sitting next to Sister Mary. Who's the other pretty girl? Everybody say hi to Laura. All right, so this week we are in um, starting a new book of the Torah, which is always fun, something a little bit different. Uh, we're going to change uh, some of our style and format from the book of Baikra, Leviticus, that we have in previously, and now we're going to be in Bamidbar, or Numbers. Um, and Bamidbar, of course, takes place in the wilderness of Sinai, Sinai, um, starting in the second month, in the second year. So chronologically here, we left Egypt on Passover, went, wandered around, made our way finally to Sinai, and have stayed there for, what, I guess a good, close to a good year now. Just so under a year. Over almost a year. Almost a full year. In fact, this is about the same time period that we're in right now. If, you, if you're counting the Jewish calendar, right now we are in the end of the second month. We're getting ready to start the third month, which will be the month of Shavuot. That would be the Hebrew calendar. Hebrew calendar, yes. Oh. Right, yes, sorry. Um, so we are currently in the wilderness of Sinai. And it's interesting because the... Uh, they, they like to kind of remind us of that fact from time to time. We had at the end of last, uh, the end of Vayikra, end of Leviticus, we had a, the, one of the portions there mentions Bahar, is at the mountain. We're going to get reminded here we're at Sinai. Sinai is really important, and not just really important, but the wilderness itself is important. Um, because, it, it, for one thing, it demonstrates the faithfulness of Israel. As we, as we jump into um, more of God's commandments and more of God's leadership of his people, one of the things that throughout the, uh, the prophets that gets repeated is their love for God in the wilderness. And um, we actually saw that today in Hosea uh, chapter 2. God says, I will bring her to the wilderness. It's always going back to the wilderness because as what oftentimes happens, when life is good, it's very easy to forget about God. It's very easy to be very content uh, in a bad way and not, uh, not think about God when you don't need him. And so one of the things that's beautiful about this particular part of Israel's existence is that they are in complete and total dependence on God. They need him desperately. And so in that time period, they are also um, focused on him. They're, they're, they are committed and consecrated to him in a special way. Um, and their faithfulness through the wilderness, the, the sages point out in the commentary that um, their faithfulness is demonstrated in brilliance in the wilderness because it's not just a one-time impetuous act. You know, the plunging into the Red Sea might have just been, you know, a little bit of craziness, but, you know, so it wasn't just that. But 40 years in the wilderness, now that takes faith. Yes, sir? Well, just in the, in the fact that this is now a year since they have received their ketubah as, as, a, as a betrothed bride, and now they have had him as their as their bridegroom for a year, this is like like as to the the honeymoon, the first year of marriage, and and the perfection that everyone every marriage should experience in that first year. Absolutely, and traditionally, um, uh, uh, in well in in the Torah, and then it's traditionally expressed in Judaism, 
Um, the man is not supposed to like leave extensively his wife during the first year. Um, he's not supposed to go out to the army and so on and so forth. He um, used to make her happy. Absolutely. And Judaism teaches today, or one of the traditions is to, um, during the first year, try and not be overnight away from each other, which is really fun to do, I have to say. So, um, then, you know, just heads up rock. Starting <laughs> July. Taking, taking notes. Yeah. <laughs> just take her away. Yeah. Right. Actually, that's the best part, I tell you. I just got back from New York with my wife. It's so much fun taking her with you. Um, so here we are in Bami Bar. We're dealing with the wilderness. Um, we've gotten our ketubah. And now we're going to count. Now is, of course, if you, if you read the book in English, it's called Numbers for a reason, because there's tons and tons of numbers. Um, and the whole like first four, five, six chapters is basically all numbers. Um, what? Lots of names. Too. Names, right, right. <laughs> names are better than numbers. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes, sir. Uh, then n- n- names with numbers are better than names. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> perfect combination of names and numbers. Spoken like a programmer. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, so, you know, the, the concept, you, you touched on, on this a little bit, but, you know, the concept of Bami Bar in the wilderness, we see the, we see wilderness being used throughout the Tanakh and even into the apostolic writings, and it's, it serves a lot of pur- different purposes. It's a place of judgment, right? I mean, why are we wandering for 40 years, right? That was part of the judgment for lacking faith when we should have been in the land, right? Uh, so it's a, it's a dry place. It's a place of judgment, a place of death. It's also associated with uh, unclean spirits and things like that. But, but then it's also a place where we are totally dependent on, on, on God. And so it's a place where our faith is tested and strengthened. Um, we see Yeshua, what does he do? He goes into the wilderness for 40 days after his immersion where he's tested, right? But he's also, at the end of that process, he's also nurtured, mm-hmm. as it were, by angelic host and so forth. But this whole idea of, of leaving Mitzrayim and then wandering in the wilderness where we are being nurtured by Hashem for 40 years. <clears throat> you know, he's providing manna for us every day. He's making sure our clothes and our shoes don't wear out. He's the, you know, he's the cloud by day, the pillar by night. All of those things are his pictures of his provision, miraculous provision for us. Um, but it, it reminds me of what we read in book of Revelation, which is really describing the final redemption and the greater exodus, if you will. But it says in chapter 12, starting in verse 13, now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman, the woman being Israel, who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nurtured or nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So this is, you know, this is, you know, the imagery um, that is often used in Revelation to describe the, that persecution that's going to come upon Israel in the end of days, and God will drive her back into the wilderness again, um, and He will guard her and nourish her in the wilderness for that period of time. Where the enemy won't be able to um, to approach. So this concept of bami bar is something that is a consistent theme 
uh, and it's something that God uses consistently uh, um, in the context of the relationship with his people, and he's going to continue to do that even into the so future. If I, if I get you real quick, um, I think you left the last verse of that out, which for those who erroneously believe that the church will be evacuated prior to any of this persecution stuff, what does the dragon do if he can't get to the woman in the wilderness? So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that she might, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Messiah Yeshua. That sounds like everybody in this room. Or outside the land. Mm. That's right. Mm. So yes, we need to go to the land. Well, just just, <laughs> just just to support, I think that's a wonderful connection between Revelation and, and the opening chapters of, of Numbers. It's a perfect connection. Yakut Shimoni, which is a which is actually not quoting from Revelation, has exactly the same comprehension. That is that Israel, but it's not just being led into by the wings of an eagle. It says specifically that Messiah will lead Israel into the wilderness and protect her there. And this particular. Torah portion, even though I'd be honest with you, you're reading it on a surface level, it's a bit dry. Um, bummy bar. Uh, um, <laughs> the, um, <laughs> but the thing is, it's actually very messianic. One of the things that they comment on, the sages point out, talk about counting. They say people of Israel are counted ten times. And then, and then believe it or not, they actually go through and list the first nine, and you're going, there really are nine times? Sure enough, it goes like, we had this time in Egypt, and we had the time at you know at Sinai, and we have another one here. We have another one when they get ready to go in the land, and we have another one, um, and so on and so forth. And the last one in the in the Tanakh, I believe, is in the Book of Ezra. Um, they get added up again there when, they, when we come back from Babylon. When they come back from Babylon, right. so where's and, the tenth? And the tenth one is when Messiah will bring back his people, and he will he will count them again. So the counting, going back to um, your point about the names. The counting itself is very important. It's not just um, a, a counting like we probably should figure out how many people we're going to tread around the wilderness with, but rather it's more the idea of almost like a counting of one's possessions. That's one of the things the sages tie in on. It's like God is so enamored of His people; they're so precious to Him, He can't wait to count them, you know, again here and add them all up. And then, of course, with the names, we are also getting a revelatory experience here because these. Um, these people were not only going to be added up, but who they are, and almost more importantly just who they are, where they come from, their families, their fathers' households, is going to be determined and settled right here. Yes, sir? Because of the emphasis placed on counting the nation, could that be why God got so upset with David when he took a census of, of Israel? Well, that is, um, the, the thing is, with counting of God's people, it has to be done very carefully. And it has to be done the right way. And one of the things um, that they point out, uh, I believe it's in the book of Exodus, is that you have to count by shekels. You don't actually count the specific people. Right. So it's like the David apparently didn't quite do it right. Maybe he, I don't, uh, he, he's obviously adding up people incorrectly. Yes, sir. Well, Ramban put, actually disagrees, I think it's with Ibn Ezra Arashi, saying that, because uh, Joab, his commander, who was actually the one who went and performed the counting, he was he was very upset and did it um, under under uh, duress. He didn't want to do duress, it. but not because of the shekel thing, because of the intention. 
because David was telling, there was, he, he, he actually didn't need to, and, and, the, and, and the Torah has very strict rules as far as when you can actually count. Mm. Because if, if you're doing it for a prideful reason, just to figure out how right. strong and powerful you are, right. then um, then there's actually, it's kind of cool, that in the Torah commandment, the next thing is like a plague that's right. happening. So I think in David's case, it was the intention rather than mm. the shekel thing. Because there was no yeah. shekel thing this time. Right. Uh, uh, there was only for the Levites. There was not right. for the people. Yeah. <coughs> What's the comment? I was talking to a friend of mine on Monday um, who had just got back from a, bit, a business trip, some like small podunk somewhere really lame, and uh, it seems to be like a week. And we love those small podunk places, by the way. Right. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> she, she goes to a synagogue here in Charlotte. And she was saying that when she was gone, she went to this one place, found him on the web, and she was overwhelmingly depressed on how small it was. It was like 12 people max, so like 10 of them were men that showed up so they could actually pray. And she had a really interesting point that I mean, everyone knew who they were, I mean, it was so small, everyone knew everybody, but just like this overwhelming lack of, of um, uh, I guess you call it of like a majestic feel compared to when she's here in, in Charlotte, you have 200 people that can sing prayers and worship on the exact same way, all together in, in, in a voice of unison. She, and so her point was, she, she uh, was quoting from the Torah, and it says, you shall count uh, uh, the mispar shemot, the number of the names. Most of the time in our culture, those are always like at odds, or the antithesis. Like, oh, I'm, I'm just considered a number at my job. They don't really know. Supposed to, I'm, I'm, you know, they know my name. I, you know, this, the, right. my manager really knows who I am. Those are always like, competing with each other. But the Torah puts them side by <laughs> side, count the number of the names. Right. Um, and she was saying that there is a balance between being small, where you know everyone's name, and then being too large, where everyone's just a number. And I know sometimes in the Messianic world, we, uh, I, I, an observation I have, a professional criticism is that the it's almost seemed more pious to have a smaller group which may or may not be true. But I think we kind of run the risk of forgetting that there's, uh, the scriptures, have, I really don't have a problem with large numbers. No. And, and with congregating. 3,000 sounds and, about right and being, Right, and, and being in the middle of a large pocket of worshipers together yeah, yeah. is just as powerful and has other advantages than just a small group. And we so, look forward to that. Right. Yes, well, in like two weeks ago, with Bahar, I think, or maybe a couple of times. Bahar? Maybe it was last week. <laughs> place where it says I think one will chase a hundred and then a hundred will chase a thousand. Yeah. And there's commentary that the ratios there are different. Right. You know, so more people is better than less people. Right. Yeah. Um, it's not the same strength, just more it's exponential. Yeah. It's uh, just as a as a modern observation, it's it's per, it's like the church growth movement. Basically if if your counting is 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 for the purpose of Building up your own little kingdom, pastor who and you know so and so or whatever, you know, then then obviously we have issues. Whereas if it's people that come together and we end up with a lot of people, that's a totally different issue. And one of the things about this particular portion that's interesting with the counting and the names, um, the uh, the sages tie in the idea that it's like there's a dual benefit there. It's both individual and corporate. So you're getting this concept that each person is important, counting of names, but at the same time, each person is an, almost like inherently equal. There's almost like no difference between them because they're all only counted once. So God is emphasizing both his people's unique specialness and their, their individual equality through this particular count, which is just kind of cool. Mm -hmm. Cool um, to hear your own name. 
Yeah, that's definitely cool. Speaking of names, one of the things I love about this portion is if we think about the history for, these, for this particular group of people, they've just spent, you know, a good hundred plus years, at least close to 200 at the minimum, in Egypt. And during that time period, we can only presume that they've been kind of indoctrinated by the culture. I mean, that's definitely what's true for, for most of us here, and that's one of the things you always measure, um, the impressiveness of someone's heritage by their children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, because it's the tendency is for that to diminish, that godliness diminishes and the culture takes over. What's cool about this passage is these leaders that get named, these 12 leaders, you see the name of God over and over and over again. You see these scriptural um, things, and more importantly, they're all in Hebrew, which is also very cool. So we've got this idea that at least somebody was passing on that heritage from one generation to the next over the course of a long, long time. And it's those guys that end up being named the leaders of the community. Yes, sir? You, you nailed it. Uh, for me, I look at our own community, and Taylor's normally the cousin, and you're doing the uh, portion discussion, and Brock is, is doing the goodbye work, and Jonathan often is filling in for Greg with the Taurus service. And it's interesting that these tribes are now known by the next generation, and that to me is by accident, by design, uh, by the will of God, what has happened here, in that the next generation is stepping up and is fulfilling the roles that need to be done and the tasks that need to be done. And I just, I just think it's so beautiful, and it's, it's a neat thing to see. Absolutely, I think there's multiple multiple generations. Not only necessary for, in terms of faithfulness, but it's also really helpful in nurturing the community. Yeah. Because if you don't have people who are in the later stages of life, then the young people are just you know zealous for nothing really. They're just right. kind of passionate. They don't know where they're going. Thank you. Um, but then at the same yeah they tend <laughs> to do that. But then at the same time, if you have um, a community that's only older, then you don't get a chance to pass those traditions on. That's right. So. Um, it's good to have both. Can I, can I change this topic? We're Go ahead. To We're moving on. Really? Okay. Um, so, uh, shockingly, uh, I'm, 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 well, I like guns. I, what can I say? It's a true. So, I thought it odd that uh, the Levites were not listed uh, along with them by their ancestral tribe in verse 47 of chapter 1. And then it goes on to say that again in verse 33 of uh, chapter 2, the Levites were not listed among the people of Israel as the Lord commanded Moses. And then finally in chapter 3, okay, go ahead and list the sons of Levi or Levi. No, no, don't list them. Yeah, yeah, right. So as I look at the, at the Levites, um, I, I, saw, I saw two things this year that I hadn't seen before. Um, first was the military nature or the protection aspect of their role, right? Um, in uh, Numbers 151, when the tabernacle is set is to set out, the Levites shall take it down, and when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up. If an, and if an outsider comes near, you shall chastise him big time and put his name on television. No. Um, <laughs> he shall be put to death. It's as simple as that. And it, evidently the Levites were the ones to do that. And we see later on in chapter 3 as we start to, to do the Levite deal um, that it was uh, 338, those 
who were to the camp before the tabernacle in the east, before the tent of meeting toward the sunrise, were Moses and Aaron and his sons, guarding the sanctuary itself to protect the people of Israel, and any outsider who came near was to be put to death. So um, it's, it's really a military game, right? So they are to protect God's holiness and to protect the tabernacle. And, uh, you know, in, in our, our, our normally pansy-type times, um, where it's just not macho to be a man anymore, uh, or to protect your family. Um, I, I just, I just think that that's uh, noteworthy. Um, the second, well, the whole group is, is described as an army, and that's the whole point of what we're doing here. Precisely. Um, the, the second thing here was um, <coughs> the um, the grace, and I've always heard uh, from the church that the, the grace is only found in the New Testament. And the Old Testament is devoid of grace. We have the God of wrath, we have the God of grace, and, and they're juxtaposed. Um, but I thought it interesting uh, that um, at the end of the, of the portion in chapter 4, they're talking about how they take stuff apart, and these guys take this down, and those guys take that down, and these guys take that down, and then the Kohathites show up, right? And they, they're supposed to schlep it. So they're just schleppers. But I, I noticed uh, today when we were reading out of the uh, what were we reading out of the art school Tanakh, I guess. Yeah. Um, it <coughs> said down in the back end, verse chapter four and verse seventeen, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, "Let not the tribe of the clans of the Kohathites be destroyed from among the Levites." And I thought, well, you know, he doesn't want these guys to wi- be wiped out because he likes them, <laughs> or. Uh, because they might be naughty and get killed or something. But that's not the case at all. If you keep reading in verse 19, but deal thus with them that they may live and not die. This is called grace. When they come near to the most holy things. And then in the verse we're reading today, it says, you know, when it's when the holy of holies is being inserted. Is that what it was? Inserted. And, you know, if you haven't read it in another version, you have no idea what they're talking about. It's, it's well, What is that? Well, if you read prior to it, if you read it in English, you're putting everything in bags. Mm-hmm. Take that stuff down, put that in a bag. That stuff goes in a purple bag, this stuff goes in a blue bag. That's a blue bag for that. Well, I mean, once you get everything in the bags, call the schleppers in, they schlep. Once they schlep it, put it down, they got to leave before you take it out of the bag. So he says, deal thus with them that they may live and not die when they come near to the most holy things. Aaron and his son shall go in and appoint them each to his task and to his burden. But they shall not go in to look on the holy things, even for a moment, lest they die. I know my children hate to find out about rules by violating them. It's better to find out about the rule and then avoid breaking it. And here we see the grace Make sure, I mean, he's telling Moses and Aaron, just like he told them all the rest of it. Make sure you tell these guys. You're not allowed to see this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think we're, well, the church is so flippant with the, with the Lord's name, our Master's name, God's name. I think they're also flippant with the stuff in the tabernacle. Mm-hmm. And it's like, everybody gets to look at that. It's the coolest stuff, and this is how we see God. <laughs> but the reality of it is, if it's done right, only the priests ever saw that stuff. Okay. Ever. Same. Then it's stuck in bags. The schleppers come schlep. They unschlep. 
and it gets unbagged by the priests. Nobody sees it. And as Gentiles, we would never get to see this ever. And you know what? Normally, we get the short end of the stick most of the time. I'm okay with that. That was God's design for me. I'm Italian, not Jew. But no other Jew would get to see these things either. And I think that's an amazing thing. And this is the first time we saw it. Well, reinforces the holiness of God. Yes, sir. Uh, just to pick up on a couple of your uh, earlier comments, it is interesting. I mean, what we have here is essentially um, the, a military encampment. Right. So we've taken a, we've taken account of how many men are eligible to fight, right? So we we have an um, an army and militia were organized by uh, tribe and by clan and by family. Battalions we, and troops, battalions and, and platoons, <laughs> squads. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So, and we have a formation, and this formation is also uh, there. The portion also lays out how, when we move, when we march, here's the order that we're going to march. You know, Yehuda is always going to be at the front. You know, so you, you truly have a. Um, you truly have. Not fully exhibited. You truly have a, um, a, a description of a military encampment, right? And what's interesting about that is we know that that Hashem's name is Adonai Tzavahot, the Lord of Hosts. And so there's there's again this, this somewhat of a I think there's a parallel here, a parallel here again because just like we have the tabernacle on earth is a shadow of the tabernacle in heaven, the priesthood here is the shadow of the priesthood. You know all of those parallels. Well, you have. Israel, who in in a sense represents the army of Hashem on the planet. What are we about to do? We've been at Sinai for about a year. What are we about to do? We're about to move out, and we're supposed to march in and take the Promised Land. What are we supposed to do when we when we get to the Promised Land? We're supposed to we're supposed to Kick annihilate <laughs> all of the nations, the pagan nations that are there, right? So He's getting us ready for a military invasion of Canaan. Of the Promised Land, okay. So, in this sense, Israel is is like an army on the face of the planet for Hashem. But just like those other parallels, you know, so there's an army in heaven, right? The angelic host and so forth. Um, And we know we from what we know, both from biblical text and other extra biblical sources, you know, there's a military command to the to the angelic host as well. Right, but um, again, the parallel again back to Revelation. Um, I'm now in Revelation 19, uh, 11. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in his and and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Um, and then it goes on to talk about you know, how he comes, and he's king of kings. And but that's describing, again, at the end of days, when we have a prince of Judah, just like we have Nachshon, who's the prince of Judah, who will lead the this military formation forward. So we have a prince of Judah, namely Messiah Yeshua, who leads 
the host of heaven to come and make that final war and and destroy the nations and the enemies of God. Hallelujah. So there's this this kind of parallel that I keep seeing here in Numbers and Revelations. I mean, yes. That's a little different um, than that, but that reminded me that something that stood out to me this particular uh, year, I don't really have like a, a, like a resolution, like a conclusion to, to what stood out to me, but um, I just thought it was interesting. Um, I was looking at the, the way the camps were set up, the um, three, three tribes each four, four times. Um, and then also in this portion is the firstborns um, are singled out. And so I, I know that um, I think firstborns are very important. Um, <laughs> I did. And um, I just think it's, it's interesting because um, Jacob chose Judah as his firstborn. He gave him a double blessing and everything. He chose him. And he, uh, he specifically discounted the first three children who were before him. Um, but I, I think that that's not really biblical. You're not supposed to do that. Um, but, you know, God chose who gets to be a leader here. There's four. There's four camps. So God honored Jacob's decision by putting Judah first. But firstborn sons are very important. So God also honored Reuben by making him a commander as well. Um, then interestingly... Um, the third one is Ephraim, who's like the firstborn of Rachel, so to speak. And then, but the last one is Dan. Dan is the firstborn of Bilhah. So it's interesting to me because the firstborn of Zilpah isn't there. Hmm. Naphtali is actually the last, last of the last. He's, he's all the way in the back. He didn't get anything. And, um, and I just thought it was interesting because it's almost like Judah kind of usurped that position. Because we have the first, everybody else who's hmm. legitimate firstborn. But Jacob was the one that chose Judah, and, and God honored that choice. So he made Judah the commander of the whole thing. I would argue that Judah earned it. Yeah. He may have earned it. Fourth born, sorry. I think the same is say, <laughs> <laughs> to say that most of the men were selected because they were earned it. They, they, had earned the, they were chosen because they were. They had acted and demonstrate what they Look at the count of you, the only and it bears this out as well. They're the most populous of all the tribes. Right. Yeah, they definitely have earned it. Marianne had a comment. Uh, I, had a, I wondered if somebody could clarify it and maybe help me with the visual. In one place it says the total number was 603,550, and it looked almost like that was the uh, 20 year olds and maybe the men in the army or something. Then another place, Seemed like it was everything. All, all the families and the divisions, the whole number was 600. Is that the whole number? Just everybody. Just the men. Just the 20 and up. So there were huge numbers. So that's going to be my next question was I was wondering, like, is 600,000 is at Mid Hill or is it at Charlotte? <laughs> that's a lot of. 600,000 is close. Charlotte. How many, how many people is there? Um, 600,000 people is a lot of people. Yeah. Um, uh, Jerusalem man. today has about 750,000 people in it, give or take. So um, 600,000 is a lot. Uh, Charlotte's got about a million, roughly. Okay. So maybe if you like locked off some of the suburbs, it'd be about that much. But yeah, no, it's a pile of people, which is part of the miracle here. We've got we've got you know a couple million people probably marching through the desert. And there's no way, in normal perspective, they should have survived. 
That doesn't make any logical Especially sense. Especially when you've seen that desert. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's quite depressing. I've driven through the Sinai, and it's as rocky and sandy and just worthless. I mean, it's like we think desert, and you kind of see like those drifting sand dunes from Saudi Arabia. That's not the Sinai. The Sinai is like just absolute wasteland for just as far as you can possibly see. Odd mountains, things aren't even... I mean, we think about like this nice flat plain where all the tents were arrayed. It's more like there's like jagged spikes popping out of the ground, and you know that's basically the area that these people wandered through. So I have to admit, having driven through the Sinai, it's like I, not to say that Israel was justified in complaining because God's always good, but at the same time, it's like I can see from a human perspective why they complain. It's a really lousy place to be, except for the fact that God was there. So you know, and he's, you see why why literally Hashem meant life or death to them. Right. They were they were toast. There's, they were all literally fried. And he, <laughs> and he mentions that at the end of Deuteronomy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You you walked all this time. Your feet did not swell up. Your shoes didn't wear out. You know. Brock, I think you were next. Um, I just want to say something going back to Juliana's comment. Um, it does seem like Naphtali, it just, like I, I, I agree with what Rick said, that the leaders definitely earned their position, that Judah earned that, but if we're talking about a military march here, mm -hmm. the rear guard is considered a post of honor. That's true, absolutely. Any self-respecting attacker, if you're going to attack somebody, they don't attack the front, they attack the rear. Right. So, so who do you put in the back? You put the guy whose name means struggle. You're going to put the wrestlers in the back. Right, so I guess what I, I, I would say Natalia did get something, he got a post box. That's cool, very good. Yeah. Well, on that, the sages actually make reference to the fact that the counting is different. Each time that it happens, the counting is a different order. Three different times. And, it, and every single time, Natalia's at the end. That's the only consistency in all the counting. So, as you say, Natalia was chosen for a very good reason. He protected the not only that, if you look at the layout of the four sides around the tabernacle, the most people are up at the front. The the west side that has no no enter, can't get in, has the least number of, of soldiers, if you will, guarding it. I mean it, it's a perfect layout. I mean, if you're gonna do a military maneuver, this is how you'd lay it out. And it's also cool to see some of the um, the groupings and how they kind of tag team. Judah is, of course, like the sort of the leadership, and he is placed with Zebulun and Issachar, who traditionally in Hebrew, in the Jewish tradition, Zebulun and Issachar are like they're like buddies. They're always around each other, and the reason is because Zebulun is like the wealth producers. They're like the the the, more, the, the businessmen, and they do the ships and all of that kind of thing. And then Issachar is traditionally the Torah scholars. They're the ones who spend all their time studying. They're really, it says that they were men who understood the times and, and chronicles. Um, traditionally, and of course this is a tradition, the calendar that we have today in Judaism was originally discovered by the men of Issachar. That's a tradition. But anyway, the point being is that Issachar is a big deal, Zebulun's a big deal, and they're like tag teams. They work together. Zebulun works in the world, and they help provide income and whatnot for the people of Issachar who study in the Torah. And they're lumped in together with Judah. And they're all, that's, that is the first point of attack. They're the, the lead, the people who are the leadership of God, and then the people who are studying the scripture mixed with a profession. Um, we also see the sages comment about how, like, the uh, woe to the wicked man and his neighbors, because we see Kohat is in the south, and he is uh, right next to, I believe Shimon is in that camp as well. Those guys end up, unfortunately... Okay. Tag, uh, is it Reuben? They ended up unfortunately tag teaming later 
with the rebellion of Korok, because Korok ends up seducing some of the guys from those tribes to come help him out in arguing with Moses. So they, the, the sages look at that and they go, oh, that's because they live next to each other. The bad guys were here, and they were influencing the people around them negatively. So, um, yeah, that's, that's not so nice. It's cool. See, isn't that cool? I love, I was glad Juliana brought that point up. It's so cool, like, little things you can dig out of this portion. Um, I'm a big, firm believer that when you read a portion and it seems a bit dull, that should be your first clue. This is really cool. Because if, like, I feel like oftentimes when, when God wants to have something really special, he wants to bury it a little bit. He wants to make you dig. He wants to make you work for it. Um, because anybody and everybody can just read, can pop open the book of Genesis and find that exciting and interesting. So when you get into a, a section like this and you're going, why is this even in the Torah? Like, that should, be, that should be your first clue. There must be something really neat here. Otherwise, it wouldn't be here. So, um, one of the counting things that's kind of cool in this passage. Oh, go ahead. Oh, one of the, real quick then. One of the counting things, a couple of counting points here. Um, that's kind of neat to go through all the tribes. Um, Dan has 62,700 people, which is a ton, and I think it's either the second or third most out of all the tribes um, behind Judah, which is really intriguing because if you go back to the genealogy, Dan's only got one son. All of the rest of the, the sons of Jacob, they've got like three or four or five or six or whatever, and Dan's got one. Oddly enough, Dan has one who's also two, because his name is actually plural, which is kind of funny, Hushim. Um, but it's kind of neat, and I think this, that is, I think, somewhat inspiring, because I think sometimes um, we can look at um, things like this whole passage is all about father's household. It's all about multiple generational <coughs> faithfulness. And it's easy sometimes for people who don't have that to feel like, well, that's it. I'm, I'm at a huge disadvantage. There's no hope for how can I possibly uh, catch up to people whose parents and grandparents have been godly and studying and, and teaching them. And it's very easy to feel discouraged, but I think that something, uh, Dan provides a cool example, uh, has not, you're, not, you're not destined to be where you are because of your past. Because Dan's only got one son, but that one son ends up producing like the largest tribe in the group, right? one of the largest ones. And I think it's really encouraging in the same way, like I think that people who, who don't have that godly heritage they have the awesome privilege of being the ones who start the God heritage. Yeah. Um, they can be that first link in the chain, and they get a chance to pass that on to their children and grandchildren. And someday, 100, 150 years from now, people will look back and say, Grandpa so-and-so, we owe our relationship with Hashem to them. And I see that um, happening with uh, Juliana's family, with uh, um, her grandfather and her mom's side being that patriarchal figure um, and I know there are a couple of younger men in this room who have already stepped up to kind of do that as well. And I think that's really cool. That's yes, Brock. beautiful way to look at it. <coughs> in future sen census is Census C. thank you. Uh, Dan, I think, Sense. in fact, becomes Sense. the largest tribe in, in all of Israel. I, I think I remember reading, you know, it, he, he eclipses Judah and his descendants become, in fact, larger. Hmm. And, and also, at, at what you were saying with... Um, know having that heritage the blessing that Jacob gives to Dan is that he will judge he will provide judges for the nation of Israel so we kind of have to have that kind of uh, tradition and you know heritage if you're going to be judging well, God's people it starts at home right that's what Paul tells Timothy he's like you can't you can't have an elder a leader of the, a judge who's not taking care of his own household right. that's automatically an issue you ready to move on we can move on now 
Um, oh, you had a comment. Yeah. Move on. Move us on. Okay, so the camps, the four camps. Thank you. The cool thought I wanted to share from Ramban, and um, uh, Taylor's not here, so people have to back me up on mysticism. I don't know how oh, it <laughs> But each, each camp had a banner, and uh, so the Ramban wanted to know what were the banners, the actual symbols on them. And so this is what he commentates. For Judah, it was obviously a lion, because that makes sense. That's, that's, that's just what it is. For uh, Reuben, the camp of uh, sandwich of Reuben, <laughs> so that would be cool. Um, it was actually fish and chips on that one. But no, it was actually a picture of of uh, Dudaim, uh, which yes. apparently are the plants. Oh. Love apples. Right. Love apples. <laughs> Supposedly, according to the, the Ramban, they actually look like a human, like a man, like the silhouette of a man. So their banner was actually looked like a man. Huh. And then um, for uh, Ephraim's camp, it was uh, an ox was was their their banner, and then Dan was an eagle. And actually, Ramban could not come up with a reason why it was an eagle, but traditionally it is. He read Ezekiel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so 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 comes Ramban and says, "Well, where have we seen a man, a eagle, a uh, lion, and, and an ox. a ox together? It's the four faces of the Heru and Ezekiel right. chapter ten. Yeah. which makes up the angel. Wow, that's cool. So, so how do we know that each nation has an angel, uh, an, an, an angelic representative, and the heavenlies huh. from, this, from this position, that, that collectively each camp is represented as an angel. Huh. And, and you see that in, in other places in, in the minor prophets as well. That's true. Nice. Wasn't there also something about how um, they, some, somebody, I don't remember who it was, somebody saw the hosts well, the tradition also holds they they wonder like why are these tribes grouped in this way? And Moses, you know, he um, he uh, traditionally, of course, it's all tradition, but Midrash Chabad.org, by the way, is an amazing resource if you want to like pull up some of these cool little traditions. Um, and one of them, it, Moses comes to God and he's like, how? Am I? I'm going to say, you're in front of the tabernacle, and all the other tribes are going to go, no, 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 I want to be in front of the tabernacle. Like, this is not going to work. I mean, have you ever had tried to separate an argument between siblings? This is going to be a mess. Mm-hmm. And, um, and God responds by saying, don't worry, don't worry. There's they no already one. know. They already know. Because he says, because when Jacob died, they took him to the land of Israel. And it says that the, 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 the people, the, the sons brought him to his, to his gravesite. And so he's like, they know because they were arranged around wow. the the coffin, as it were, um, the same way they'll be arranged around here. And he's like, Jacob, when he was dying, gave instructions as to where they should be array- arrayed. And he's like, don't let Joseph carry it. He is a king. He's not supposed to. So Joseph is absent here. But his sons, who've been adopted by Jacob, are going to be helping him carry the, carry the coffin. Don't let Levi touch it because Levi is destined to carry the ark. So Levi should not also carry the coffin. Can't touch a dead body anyway. So you've got these little, so his groups of three around the, the coffin of Jacob parallel the camps that they have laid out as well, which is very cool. And I think it also, this whole portion, I hope that um, for those of you who are fathers and grandfathers in this group, um, I, 
I think it's neat throughout this portion the emphasis on the father's households. They keep saying you're gonna buy the father's households, buy the father's households. And I was just telling Juliana this week. It's so funny. I lived in. I went. To, I went to college. I went. I lived overseas. I had all this time away from my family, and I somehow ended up living like just down the road, basically from my family. Mm-hmm. And that's really kind of cool. And it's neat to see um, the emphasis and the importance of of family and of carrying on those traditions of respecting. Um, who you are and who you came from um, you know one of the things we brought up last night at the Shabbat table is that we get through the Eshet um, Chayil and we sing the song and then after it's over my dad always reads out one or a handful of verses from or during the week during the English from the passage and highlights things that my mom has done during the week that line up with things of the Eshet Chayil passage and we continue that tradition in my house it has since now spread over to um, the Bartos uh, younger generation, and then um, now it's reaching Juliana's parents. So it's sorry going... about that. <laughs> <laughs> Me as well. Oh, there we go. So it's so that's cool though. How like you have a tradition from the father, and honor my father here for coming up with a really cool tradition that gets passed down. And I think that that um, we need to be cognizant of that, um, especially as young men. It's very easy to want to try and start your own thing to the point of excluding your parents. Um, but I think that the, I think that's a mistake. I think that we need to, while it's not a problem to come up with new ways or new ideas, we need to always remember our parents probably know better than we do. More importantly, your parents learn from their parents. Also true. No one well, I was just going to say real quick. See, the same thing is the case with worship, and that's what I was talking about before. I mean, for for longer than than Judaism collectively can remember. What we're doing right now is what has been done. And the master participated in it. He didn't stand up and say, whoa, whoa, where's the organ? You're not going to play anything before we do this? You know. Um, our, our, our practices, if we, if we choose at the beginning to look at what those who went before us have done and, and practice it and try it out and see if it's good, um, seems to be a little bit wiser than, as you said, just out of thin air. Let me see if I can come up with my own deal. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yes, sir. Just to pick up on that, I mean, the whole idea of generational faithfulness. I know it's a big focus in this community, yeah. especially with the Zadi, with the Zadi King, um, is the con- the idea of you know passing on a heritage to our children. However, um, I had someone. You know, it was a conversation recently with someone, and they made a statement that struck me as really cool. We were talking about generation faithfulness, and this this person said, "Well, yeah, generational faithfulness is good, and we always tend to think about it as passing to the next generation, but it actually works in reverse. Generational faithfulness goes both ways. In other words, how can I expect?" my children and my children's children to be faithful to me if I'm unfaithful to the generations that have gone before me. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about generational faithfulness, mm-hmm. we should also be, we should be thinking about it both ways, both ways okay. because we okay. must be faithful to the generations before us if we expect generations after us right. to remain faithful. And recognize that we've been adopted into a new channel. Yes, sir. And it's, it's, it's a part of recognizing that we're Simply a link of chain that we're that we have an obligation to those who went before us to pass on 
you know, but people ask me a lot of times, because my father passed away, a blessed memory, passed away long before Messianic Judaism was popular, and it's still not popular. <laughs> um, but, uh, long before it was popular. And so people ask me, well, what would your dad think of today? And I said, well, you know, he has, he has two daughters and two sons that practice the faith of Messiah Yeshua in the frame of Messianic Judaism. And he has this wife practice it. I think he'd like it. I, I, I don't know for sure. But one thing I do know is that his character is something that I'm trying to pass on also. So it's not simply a matter of passing on traditions, but it's actually it's what those traditions represent. Exactly. And the faith is exactly the same faith. Everyone should recognize that our faith is exactly the same. The difference is that we have rested <coughs> in a more authentic and hopefully then strengthens our faith because it's more authentic, more authentic actions that follow through with the same faith. So an interesting thing on teachers here um, and fathers. Uh, chapter 3 of Numbers begins by saying, These are the offspring of Aaron and Moses on the day Adonai spoke with Moses at Mount Sinai. These are the names of the sons of Aaron. And the sages go, wait, wait, wait. I thought he said, these are the offspring of Aaron and Moses. Where's the offspring of Moses? Uh, Moses' children are never mentioned here. And um, the sages follow up on that by commenting that a teacher is like a father. And a teacher passes on and influences that next generation in a, in a very similar way to a father. His disciples so, are his children. His disciples <laughs> are his children. So Moses trains Aaron's children. And so they're like a tag team group on raising this generation. Um, and while I disagree at some level with the uh, it takes a village concept because that tries to, to disenfranchise parents from being the primary teachers of their children, I do think that uh, community is important in raising and growing those children because they're the ones um, sometimes who are there when the parents can't be, and they're the ones who sometimes provide um, different perspectives that can flesh out the things that the parents are trying to teach. They can also provide, um, sometimes they can reach kids in ways parents can't. But the point is that, um, that it is necessary to have that balance. You have to have the people you are physically descended to at some level. Um, or at least there's a respect there for them. Um, and then also you have the teachers who were there. This should also be encouraging to those who don't, um, who don't have children, that, that there's not a, um, or those who are single, that there's not like, well, that's it. You know, your life is completely meaningless and you're not going anywhere. But um, that's not true at all. Moses here has an opportunity to be raising up the next generation by, um, by being a teacher to Aaron's sons. Joshua. Oh, I never Go ahead. To your point about community, um, I was raised in a small town on Long Island, and uh, I went into town on my bike one day and was being a jerk, and the barber came out and grabbed me by the ear, and he corrected me. <laughs> um, and to your point, it, it doesn't take a village it takes a community that knows each other. And that barber knew my dad <coughs> very, very well. And he knew that if he were going to be a friend to my dad, he had to correct my dad's son. And he did. 
I didn't use him as a barber after. No, <laughs> but but it it it, com it comes together that way. And and my children, uh, praise God, are are older and and, and taking wives and and, and uh, becoming husbands and, and all that kind of stuff and, and whatnot. So I, you know, I hope we're kind of beyond that part. But um, my friend Scott, um, I'd like to think that if his children are near and around me and in, on the rare, extraordinarily rare, I can't extraordinarily even possible. the opportunity where one would uh, be doing something inappropriate, I, I demonstrate my friendship and my, and my love for Scott in that I would correct his children. And that which I say about him I feel I should be able to say about any man in this fellowship, I would expect them to help me raise my sons, as I will help them raise their sons and daughters, only because that's what community is all about. It is not undermining parents, it's enforcing and enhancing that parental role. And that community is really important in that, because the problem with the village concept that Hillary Clinton espoused is that oftentimes the village is running counter to the parents. That's right. The or, village, does, or doesn't even know what the parents want. Or doesn't even know what the parents want. Part of what makes the community work, you know, that Julianne and I have talked about how it's so much easier to babysit her, our nieces because of the fact that we identify with the same values that their parents have. Well, but you, but you bring up a good point. I mean, um, <coughs> you separate? Scott's family doesn't separate meat and dairy, but Greg's family does. So Ben sitting over here, I would treat and correct him differently than I would <coughs> Josiah, hmm. but only because I know and love the men, right. I know and love their fathers, and I want to enforce and enhance what their fathers are teaching them. True, right. It's not to correct their fathers, <coughs> it's not to make some political statement, is to help that father raise his sons in the way that he's choosing to raise them. Jean, you had a comment? Yeah, no, I just wanted to give that a scripture in Proverbs because it says, in the multitude of counsel, there's wisdom. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you go to h.com, it's, it's a wonderful website, and they have uh, 48 Wisdom Keys by uh, Rabbi Noel uh, Weinberg, mm -hmm. and it's amazing. And he has a whole article on exactly what we're talking about today, you know, getting the wisdom that, of course, from your parents and grandparents and the Absolutely. Yes, sir. What we're describing really is a family. That's why it's not by accident that there's numbers. It's not about individual families that somehow are unattached, but that they are a single family. They're really family. And the only way to describe God's people is always family. And it's not just about correcting one another's children. It's actually about protecting one another's children. So Brock, even though he is my friend, because he's because he's Sean and Lisa's son, knows that he can come to me if he has a need if Brock and Lisa are around. Mm -hmm. And Sean and Lisa. Yes. Yes. So so it's not just a matter of it's not just a matter of of keeping little children from disobeying, but it's True. also it's also about providing protection and provision for our friends, our family members whose children may be in need and their parents aren't around. Mm -hmm. yes, sir. I'm also reminded of that uh, very profound line in um, Heaven Almighty, 
where his wife is at this restaurant, and then uh, the, uh, the actor is God, who's coming to, to visit her, and has this pr profound statement. He says, when, when, a, when someone asks for patience, does God give them patience, or does he give them an opportunity to be patient? And I think that's really what the village concept is. It's, and of course, it's for support of the family and the child rearing. But more importantly, I think it's okay. I, here's you know, father to son, mother to daughter, however that works. Here's here's these, these these character traits that we're expecting you to fulfill. Here's here's the the type of person we want you to be. Um, but if you're on an island, if you're in a, if you're in a desert, there's no opportunity to ever refine those character traits. That's what the village is for. That's 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 the opportunity that a, that a child, a grown man. Uh, even a father can further refine an interaction with daily life because that's really what—that's how you become a better person of, of, right. of character. That's to me, that's a significant part of raising a, a, a village to raise a child. True. Yes, sir. Just off that point, that's the reason why they say you haven't um, fulfilled your life purpose if you're a bad man ah. because you have no opportunity to uh, to demonstrate all those character traits. Yes. Mm. Right. So if you are just on an island, and you can't demonstrate patience and right. self-control and stuff like that, because you're all alone. Right. Asceticism is not the idea. Escape is not the answer. That's actually it's interesting because um, one of the things the sages look at when they look at the numbers in this particular uh, portion, um, they they look at the the Levites and they are puny. I mean, they're really tiny. If you count but all of them, they're armed. But if you count all of them from one month old, and by the way, the one month olds are also armed, all the way up, all the way up, there's only 22,000. Now, if you're counting just the 20-year-olds end up, the smallest tribe after that, I think, is uh, at Menashe at 32,000. So, in all likelihood, the Levites are, are something like 50% or less, the smallest of the remaining tribes. And the sages are like, this is odd. Like, what, what, why is that the case? And one of the points is that the in tradition, the Levites were not put into slavery in Egypt. Um, if you look in the in the story of Joseph, they make a point of saying that the uh, the priesthood uh, of the Egyptians did not have to give up their property uh, during the famine when Joseph was distributing out all the stuff. And Pharaoh basically subsidized the priesthood. Well, tradition holds that Moses um, did something similar, or kind of negotiated a similar arrangement before he became persona non grata in Egypt. Uh, so that the the the, the Levitic the, the priesthood as it were the priest family as it were of, of Israel also did not have to work um, as as slaves. So the sages look and they say, see that's the that's in a sense the problem here, because they didn't go through the suffering and the difficulties, and so they did not God did not feel the I guess the see the importance of supernaturally blessing them, because the whole point of these numbers being so astronomical. <coughs> Is that it was in response? It was in it was in uh, counteracting what the Egyptians were trying to do. The Egyptians were enslaving the people of Israel to keep the numbers down. The, you know, the idea was we work these men so hard and these you know, these families so hard they won't keep having more kids, and the exact opposite happens supernaturally. And so they say the Levites were not put in that under that pressure. They weren't put in that difficult circumstance, and so they didn't end up rising up in the same way miraculously. Um, which is, I think, true for us a lot of times too. When we're in when difficult circumstances, we find things that are uh, supernatural. Um, and then when we are sometimes in our easiest ways, easiest times, we don't have the same the same support. Um, flipping ahead a little bit here, and if anybody wants to jump in, we're getting towards the end of our time, so I want to I want to be cognizant of that. Yes, sir. 
Uh, I just, uh, in 3-4, we read about uh, Nadav and Avi who died before the Lord when they offered unauthorized fire. Some verses, Alien. Alien. Some verses are strange fire. Calling in, uh, calling in the strange fire. Um, further down in verse 10, you shall appoint Aaron and his sons in this regard the priesthood, but if an outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. Outsider, that would be me. And the unauthorized fire, same word. Same word. Hmm. Throughout. And, uh, it, you know, it's, it's something that doesn't belong. Mm -hmm. It is but by the grace of God and the blood of Messiah Yeshua that allows me, unauthorized, stranger, to draw near. Very true, but you still can't get that close. There are some things neither that no one gets close Neither to. can she. Right, because there's some, there's some things that are special. Only that one family. Speaking of what, oh, yes sir, Brock. Hmm. I had an interesting, <coughs> um, so, you know, it talks about only the Levites can, you know, touch the, the items of the tent of meeting. Or see them. Or see them. Well, and the Cohen's only ones allowed to see them. The Levites right, the carry priest, them, but the priests. The priests, right. yeah. So, show me in the bag. The priests are the only ones allowed to see them. We've seen in this chapter how uh, Nadab and Abihu were, you know, killed or, or incinerated because they did something wrong. But I guess later in the Tanakh, you see the son of Eli, mm -hmm. uh, the high priest. They do something that's, they, they're not really that, that great of, of men, and they do some things that aren't necessarily wrong, but they're never really... Well, they, they do, they do some bad stuff. They do eventually die, but they're never really, you know, I guess, immediately punished die. or corrected right. for that. And I, I always thought that was interesting, and it seemed to me that it had something to do with the fact they were sons of Cohen. Sure, true. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely true. We see that in the days in the first century as well. The, the Kohenim were able to get through a whole lot of stuff. That's Nothing right. bad happened to them until the very end. Although at the same time, um, a lot of the... Uh, the, the zapping moments, if you will, with the, with the one with um, Nadab and Abihu here, and then also Uzzah, they're carrying they're carrying the ark in the cart, and it starts to fall off, and he goes, wait. Mm -hmm. oh. So, like Uzzah moment. Yeah, that one, like those types of things. Um, it partly is because again, it goes back to the holiness of God here. That's the issue. It's not just that God's not that God's just, but at the same time, it's like these are really special and really important. And that's why there's like a special, uh, a special dispensation, a special punishment that's applied to those who break those rules. Yes, sir. Well, just to kind of pick up on that, I mean, even <clears throat> those concepts still apply today in the synagogue. Mm -hmm. I mean, even with the Torah scroll, so there are certain standing. ways that we we handle the Wonderful. Torah scroll. We carry it a certain way. When we bring it out, don't dare drop it. it. <laughs> we, yeah, we don't. Yeah. <laughs> we don't want to drop it, but even when we undress the scroll and we and we lay it down on the bema, we immediately cover it up. It stays covered unless it's being used, mm -hmm. and then it's covered immediately again. Right? It's that whole idea of there's a sanctity there, and <clears throat> and it's not to just be kind of you know handled flippantly, you know, and you guard the sanctity and those. Those concepts, you know, are still with us in our daily synagogue and Torah service. Absolutely. Um, one of the things about guarding the sanctity. Um, did you have a comment? Just a quick one. Go for it. Um, on the what uh, Greg was talking about the sanctity and the holiness of that, and what Joseph said before, way back, uh, talking about the name, you know, the church, talking about the name. Right. Flippantly. Flippantly. Um, last week's portion. 
couple words that God used, casualness, yeah. that really stuck yeah. out to me in that portion. And just in my daily prayer life, I've just kind of rededicated myself because you can you can go through things so many times and, and just it almost becomes casual. And uh, and the other things follow in, you know, the day's starting and you, you know, you're thinking about other things. And I just, because of that word, the casualness and the Holy Spirit kind of reminded me of that, I, I just kind of rededicated my prayer life and just focusing more on the words and what God's trying to say in those words and, and just giving him that reverence and holiness. Absolutely. It's a really good point. Um, one of the things on this particular portion that's also thinking about the, the holiness of God, we got those layers we cover up on. Did you raise your hand? Nope. Okay. Um, those layers that are covering up the ark. Um, I believe it's the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Um, it was on a Chabad.org, and I can't remember exactly the source, but I think it's the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Has, I'm going to go mystical here, so Peter, back me up. Um, but there's this really cool like uh, imagery and analogy that's done with the Ark. And they, they, he points out that the Ark has these different layers that are put on top of it to cover it, which is very interesting because, of course, um, uh, you've got in the, in, the, in the Holy of Holies, the Ark is uncovered, and then it goes out and travels, and they put these layers on and they, and he compares it to the soul of man. And the point that he's trying to get at is that the, the soul of man in the presence of God, before, before we step, it steps into this world, into a human, a human body, is, um, is, is holy and sanctified. It's in like a special place in God's presence. But then, like the ark, it gets covered by all these layers. Um, and the specific layers that it mentions are um, like kind of your animalistic nature, materialistic nature, the things you want and crave and desire. That, that gets on top of your you know, impressive and beautiful soul. And then on top of that, you're also wrapped in, you know, like the, t the, the ark is wrapped in takash skins. The soul is also wrapped in a body, a human body. And then last but not least, the ark is also covered by yet another covering. And in the same way, humans are placed in a world that is not, it's less than ideal. It's a world where the, the, the image of God is distorted and, and, and not easily visible. And, um, and yet, it's necessary. The ark was covered by all this stuff because the ark had to travel. It wasn't where it was supposed to be yet. Mm -hmm. Even though in its, in, its, in its original place in the Holy of Holies, it's perfect, right? It doesn't, it, it's, in, it's complete. It's not where it's supposed to be yet. And so he's commenting with the soul of man in the same way. We start off in the presence of God, but that's not the end of our journey. We have to go through that world. We have to go through that, those layers of traveling to get to a place at the end of life where we've sufficiently grown and matured and experienced life to properly get to the promised land as it were. Just as the ark dra travels from Sinai to the land of Israel and in that time period is covered up. So in the same way our souls are covered up by all of this stuff but that's part of the necessary process of getting us to where we're supposed to be. Yes sir? Just on that point that the ark um, would not be fulfilling its purpose if it were not in the tabernacle and so just like us our soul if it's just up with God um, and not in our body is not fulfilling its purpose which is to keep the commandments mm. so it can't keep the commandments in the presence of God you have to be down here on this world wrapped in flesh to keep them absolutely yes, speaking of keeping the commandments um, this is actually my birthday portion oh. yeah. um, not her birthday yet but it's coming no, my birthday, yeah. mm -hmm. yes. um I always forget that it's uh, that it's this portion, but um, I remember saying a, um, a year or two ago that something that 
um, I love about this portion is that I see in it that we are supposed to be, um, we're supposed to take the initiative and we're supposed to run to obey the commands. Mm -hmm. And um, I see that in, toward the end of the portion um, when God is talking about taking the firstborns and taking the Levites instead of the firstborns, there's um, an excess of 273. And um, as much as we love the number, the, uh, the 273 extra people are the ones that are um, that receive consequences because they're in excess, and now they each have five shekels. But it says that Moses took the money of the redemption from those who were in excess. So that means that the first 22,000 people to get there didn't have to pay the fine. If, if you were first in line, you could have saved that money. Five, five shekels, that may be a lot, maybe a little, but um, the point being that we should, we should always be first in line. Absolutely. I mean, that should be the priority. Mm -hmm. that, um, especially when it's a difficult commandment to fulfill, mm -hmm. um, something we really don't feel like doing right now. <laughs> um, just, you know, maybe standing in a 22,000-person line doesn't sound like fun. Right. But, but we're, you know, God commanded that. that we were just, you know, they were supposed to be counted and stuff like that. And, and I, don't, I think that, um, for me especially, it's, it's difficult to remember sometimes that we don't want to complain about having to fulfill a commandment. True. Or to do a mitzvah or right. tzedakah or something like that. And um, it's always a good thing. And in this case, if you were first in line, you got the blessing of keeping it. Julianne will be teaching the tzaddik class. Julianne is always first in line. That's true. I, one of the things that, um, I, one of the many things I really love about my wife is she takes good initiative. And she's very good at coming up with ideas for hosting people or, or doing activities in our home. And I think that's great. But that reminds me of, of one of the earlier portions. We're actually going to come up, I think it's next week. The longest chapter in the Torah is, is, a, is coming up. And in that one, we see a redemption for someone who didn't take initiative. Because think about that story. We got these, the, the leaders, the, the leaders of the tribes. Um, if you look at the tabernacle when they built it, they, it, it mentions almost kind of offhandedly at the end, oh, we had all these incredibly expensive jewels that were brought by the leaders. Moving on now, and the sages are like, wait a minute, why wasn't that listed first? I mean, whoa, you know, we're talking huge gemstones that go in like the breastplate and on the shoulders of the priestly garments. And why is that like, just kind of like eh, flippantly left at the end? And the reason they say is because the, 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 el the leaders had these gems that they were like, oh, we're going to give those. And they're like, well, what else should we give? And they're like, well, we'll just wait. We'll just wait and see what they need when it's all done. And we'll fill in the gaps. And that was not necessarily like sinful, but it was, and not even necessarily like born out of bad motives. But the lack of initiative ends up kind of punishing them because, of course, the people of Israel bring everything. In fact, they bring too much almost to the point where Moses finally has to say, "Stop! We have enough." Unheard of in the church. Yeah, uh, yeah. Can you imagine that <laughs> having a building a building campaign where the pastor goes, "Just want to let you all know that we don't want any more money. Please stop putting money in the offering plate." Um, and basically, that's what happens here. And so the, the, the leaders end up getting kind of left out. And all they've got are these jewels. And that lack of initiative kind of costs them in, in a terms of prestige. Because God's like, and they, they brought these jewels. So next week, and when you get to this portion, be thinking about this. Because it's a really long portion. It's easy to get bogged down in it. Um, what's so cool is that as soon as they're getting ready to leave, as soon as they're getting ready to like move on to the next step, the leaders all go, wait, take me. Um, we've got carts, we've got offerings, we've got all this stuff because the leaders learned their lesson. They're like, we got to jump to the front of the line. We got to be there as quickly as possible. Um, and that I think is really neat to see. That going back to Juliana's point, that taking initiative with those commandments. You know, Abraham gets up in the morning to go offer Isaac. 
because he wants to make sure the hardest commandments he's going to do as quickly as possible. Not to get them over with, but because he loves Hashem so much, he wants to make sure he gives the, the intensity and, the, and the, the speed with which they, they're worthy of. And I think I saw a hand raised up here. Yes, sir. I, just, I don't know if you're getting towards the end, but before you get towards the end, let me read this from this week's Christian. Because it, listen to y'all talk about it. It's pretty cool. Y'all are talking about this dry Torah portion as if it's the most exciting thing. Then, ba- then Bagbag, yeah. hey, hey, whatever his name was, delve into the Torah and continue to delve into it. For everything is in it. Look deeply into it. Grow old and gray over it. <coughs> Do not stir from it. Do not stir from it. For you have no better portion than it. Ben Hehe, or Ben Bagba, <laughs> says the reward is in the proportion to the exertion. Rabbi Hananiah ben Akishia said, The Holy One, blessed is he, wished to confer merit upon Israel. Therefore he gave them Torah and mitzvot in abundance, as it says. Uh, Adonai desired for the sake of Israel's righteousness that the Torah would be great and glorious. Amen. Well, that was a pretty good way to stop. It has to be last minute comments. Tom. I just want to say uh, two things. It's really nice being here uh, in this group. And me personally not saying, well, Rick says this or Rick says that. <laughs> Rick's in the room. <laughs> <laughs> Don't call me. So, um, for me personally, uh, many years ago, uh, my, I think my very first consciousness of this walk, the very first Torah portion that I remember was from Midbar. And uh, I went to church the next day and actually referenced the midbar from the pulpit and quickly found out that that wasn't the right thing to be doing. <laughs> okay. So, uh, as you have blessed us, thank you for your love and your hospitality. It's good to see the personalities and the faces with all the voices that I hear. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for driving all the way up here to come spend Shabbat with us. All right, look forward to that. Anything else? Okay, well then, um, I guess we shall end in prayer. That's probably good. How about you do that? I've been practicing. Our Father and our King, what a gracious and wonderful time that you've given to us as we approach the time that you've told us to count to and be aware of. I pray that you would open our hearts to understand and to recognize what Shavuot is all about, the giving of your blessed and wonderful instructions for life. I pray, Father, that you assist each one in this room to understand how best to articulate that to our friends and family outside of the Torah movement. Father, we, uh, we, are, we are very grateful, so grateful for our community, for the Upham family opening their home uh, for a Shavuot experience, for Joshua and Juliana opening their home for an opportunity for us to pray together again on a convocation which you called on your calendar. And Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to celebrate the immersion of Yehuda ben Uziel. Father, I thank you for Judah and for his walk. We pray that as our congregation and community grows older, We'll watch a young man become a strong leader here. 
Father, we pray for those that are outside our community that are in troubled times now, especially those in the bond servant ministry, Father, up in Marion. Pray for Lynn, uh, Alan's aunt, who's there ministering to them now. Father, it's a, it's a wicked and perverse generation in which you have placed us. And I pray that each of us would be shining lights, practicing and walking out your commandments day in and day out, that they might look at us and marvel at what a wonderful God we have. Father, we pray for the soon return of your son, that he would come quickly, soon, and in our days, and all God's people say, Amen. 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 Thank you. Praise Thank you. Caitlin's been released from the hospital. All right. <laughs>